0: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Ladies and gentlemen. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producers are Patrick Antonetti and Sean Cherry. uh, As we've done with our last couple of podcasts, taping this in Toronto, where uh, my family and I remain in self-quarantine after um, coming back from uh, the United States. Uh, Like when we did um, Dr. Selene Gounder and Grant Wall, uh, I have a coronavirus-related guest as well, and I think somebody you're going to find really interesting. Uh, Chico Harlan is the Rome Bureau Chief for the Washington Post. He joined that paper in 2008, where he started off uh, doing, of all things, covering the Washington Nationals. We'll talk a little bit about that. He then spent four years as the paper's East Asia Bureau Chief, focusing on Japan and the Korean Peninsula. Um, He has been in Rome since June of 2018, and that is where we talked to Chico Harlan today. Chico, thanks so much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast.
1: Absolutely. Thank you, Richard.
0: All right, Chico. um, There's a number of things I want to get to, but first and foremost, uh, just how are you? Um, You're in Rome. You're in the middle of a country that has been sort of the center of this pandemic. Um, How are you? What is your health at the moment? And what is your day-to-day, if you can give us a sense of it?
1: Yeah. I mean, th- thanks for asking. It's, I, I surely, you know, have nothing to complain about, uh, in terms of my own health next to, next to anybody else. I mean, I, I'm not sick. Uh, I, I've been working quite hard and, and that has brought, you know, some stresses as well as, uh, as some adrenaline. And it has been, it has been good to have a, have a sense that I'm doing something important and, and the work feels almost like the only the only part of my life that is semi-normal. Like I know I know how to cover a big story, and and really be dedicated. You know, 16 hours a day to something. This maybe is a little bit longer than other peaks, but at least like writing the stories. You know, this is the only part of uh, of my day to day that hasn't flipped upside down. The hard part has been simply being cooped up and and seeing the country or my city really, really atomize and be a place that, you know, in the most literal way feels like it has been like dehumanized. There's nobody around anymore. And and not for any reason other than just an epic tragedy. Uh, so for a while, you know, there, there were stresses even with my own family, like should my wife and, and baby go back? This was a few weeks ago before there was a lockdown. We were trying to, you know, like so many other people compute whether other places might be safer for them, whether they could get um, better help from, from my wife's, uh, parents, which, you know, I, because I've been working hard, uh, they've kind of been on their own. Anyway, we decided to, to stick together and to, um, and to avoid what could be a long-term separation given the way countries are kind of raising their borders right now. And so it's really been the three of us inside of this apartment for, um, for the last couple of weeks, I've been, I've been really, you know, working, uh, most, most hours of the day, but, but by phone. And it's been a surreal existence inside of this apartment, trying to document the crazy things that are happening in Italy.
0: Chico, can you give us a sense of just like where you are in the city? Um, for people, uh, if probably there'll be people listening who have never been to Italy, let alone Rome, but just sort of geographically give us a little bit of a sense of where you are and perhaps even in relation to the, um, to the worst places in the country right now.
1: Sure. Okay. So in terms of Rome, I am in the city center, a little bit close to the river. Um, Maybe the best landmark would be Campo di Fiori, which is under normal times, kind of a gross uh, touristy market. And and now there is nobody there. Um, The hardest hit parts of Italy are to the north in the area of Lombardy, which includes Milan, And I'm not, I can't give you like a kilometer estimate, but by bullet train, it's about three, three and a half hours. And, and so Italy is small enough that, that the things that happened there surely have been internalized here. And, and though Rome hasn't been as hard hit, it has more than a thousand confirmed cases. And the behavior is as if it has a hundred thousand, because when you, when you do go outside, you see people who, um, are, are suspicious of everybody, they're all wearing masks. If they're going to the grocery store, they're wearing, they're wearing surgical gloves. And, um, and I think for, for a lot of cities, the, the behavioral changes don't come until, until the horror has kind of arrived. And, and I keep kind of telling myself, maybe wishful, wishfully, but that Rome is perhaps a little safer than, than other major cities of the world because it's one of the few places where, where people change their behavior before the crisis hit true emergency level.
0: Chico, what are the challenges of reporting the story right now for you?
1: There are a couple. Number one is truly just staring the the horror of this in the face every day. There have been, there've been some times when it is hard to wake up knowing that you're going to be on the phone with doctors or even just on on Twitter looking at videos from these hospitals um, and thinking about it because its it, you're, you're basically writing about death and you're writing about people who aren't getting care and you're writing about um, a sort of loneliness that comes on families that are losing people because funerals aren't allowed, because if someone goes to the hospital uh, with the virus and dies, they are not having contact with anybody. They're being being buried by a priest And by a funeral director and their families are under quarantine, it's, it is really a kind of, uh, extraordinary suffering and it's so widespread. And, and so my job is to be in that world remotely, but, but still be there. Um, and, and that part though, it's, it feels really vital. Uh, I wouldn't say that it's, it's easy and it's not comparable to what I normally do journalism wise, Um, and then, and then the logistical side is the, is the second part, which just because for a combination of reasons, the government restrictions on movement, the fact that I want to be in writing about different places from one day to the next, the fact that I'm worried about my own family's safety, I haven't been moving around really much at all. I haven't traveled outside of Rome and phone interviews are not as good as being on the ground. And, and for now, that is what I've been trying to do to get by. Uh, but the, the sort of value for being on the ground, you know, if you're in a place for a few days now, that's not a three day trip. That's, that's a 17 day trip. Cause you have to add in the quarantine. And then all of a sudden if something else happens in another place, you can't be there. So I think for journalists everywhere, they're trying to figure out how do you cover this and, and what is worth the risk? Um, and you know, I, I haven't seen much on the ground journalism in Italy, and, and I've noticed that it's kind of dried up a little bit in the United States too. Like in the first couple weeks, there were uh, stories from these nursing homes, like in Washington. Now it's, it's being done largely over the phone. And a few days ago, I did see the Sky TV report, which I would encourage people if their stomachs are steeled to watch it from inside of one of these hospitals in, in Bergamo, which is really hard hit. And it just like wrecked me for the day because First, because of the images, and second, because I was thinking, should I be doing that? Is that is that essential to be doing? Um, and I don't know. I don't. I, I we don't even know that much about this virus yet, and and so calculating the risk becomes really difficult. Um, generally, my instinct is to wait and try to get more information, and and to learn more about the virus before I take anything that feels risky. Not just for myself, but more importantly you know i'd be bringing home the risk to my family and and so it does it does feel like an unprecedented time for journalists because not just those in italy but all over the world are going to eventually be covering this thing and and guidelines are nice to have but they're always changing at this point
0: point. one of the as uh, well said one of the um you know you talked about sort of things that are gutting and one of the things that uh you know, if you're reading the news and sort of trying to find accurate and informed sources, one of the things that really struck with me was um, seeing the obituaries in Italian papers. Obviously, I don't speak Italian. I don't read Italian, but you don't sort of need to speak the language or read the language to understand, like, um, some of those videos of the some of the bigger papers in Italy and just pages and pages of obits. I mean, it was... Man, it, was, it was it was it was hard to see So I, I understand I asked this question understanding that everything that you're covering is troubling and and awful but at this point um, what, what, what whether it's a singular story or something else what what has really been the thing that sort of uh, troubled you the most or or the most concerning thing that you've covered let's say over the last two weeks in Rome?
1: Well from a purely, emotional standpoint, I guess it is, it is the convergence of like loneliness that comes upon the dead in, in, uh, these areas that are hard hit. If, because, all right, so say, say your father, um, or any, you know, just anybody's father becomes sick with this and gets taken, um, to a hospital then, and then they, they, they die a few, a few weeks later. um, you're not able to have in in Italy any contact with them, um, as, as they, uh, as they deteriorate in this hospital. And then afterwards, you're not able to, to be there for a funeral. That's so incredibly lonely. And, and it goes against, you know, what, what societies have become accustomed to over millennia, this process of of grief, and it's all been upended. Um, so that, that part, that part is like, it, it really shows how, um, beyond beyond the death toll, for each each person who's dying, there's this 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 profound sadness that is left with the families that that I don't think is something that people can easily process. So that's been really tough. And you mentioned these these uh, obituaries. Yeah, this is in a town. it's not even it's not even uh, a major city. It's Bergamo, which has about a hundred thousand people. And normally their obituaries are two or three pages long. They've been now ten, eleven, twelve pages in this town, which, I mean, it's a miracle they're even putting out this newspaper on a day-to-day basis uh, because this town has really been been brought to its knees by the virus. Um, but this is also the place where it was that hospital that I was referencing. And and I guess in terms of the other things that have stuck with me, it's the images of people, one after the next, on gurneys, like even in in the hallways of hospitals because there's no other space for them. They, they can't breathe. And, and some of the most... Um, you know, the worst-off patients are on their back intubated, uh, basically attached to, to very um, uh, heavy-duty breathing machines. But other ones who are a little bit better off, not as critical, have these, I would describe them almost like plastic helmets on, so their heads are totally encased, and they, they look almost like, like Lego men with these oversized heads. Um, because of the devices that they have on, and they're all just taking such methodical, labored breaths, one after the next, sardine together, and and some are young, not all, most aren't, but you definitely see some people in there in their in their fifties, forties, and and you wonder what happened, you know, why why them? I uh, mean, there's no answer. There's not always an answer with this stuff.
0: I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League Podcast one of the things that's uh, pretty alarming now, obviously, in hindsight, is I saw a lot of these videos of um, some famous places in Rome, uh, you know, Spanish Steps, etc., where a couple of weeks ago people were out, and uh, tourists were there, and people were doing what they normally do uh, in Rome and in Italy. Can, can you give me a sense of, um, because I think it's uh, a valuable lesson for Americans, obviously, like what what was it like? Like, when did this change in Italy? Like, when did the behavior, like, dramatically shift? And for how long did people not take any kind of warning seriously?
1: I, I think that in Italy, people were a little bit slow to understand the gravity of this, but in an understandable way. When, it, when the first couple hundred or even first couple thousand cases were, were coming, the message from some politicians was, okay, you know, this is this is something that is a manageable risk, and we should still be socializing with uh, with the proper protocols in place for a while. Italy kept restaurants, even in the north, open for limited hours, and and the rules were simply to try to limit overcrowding. And it was about two weeks ago that as you know, the number of dead just kept rising by the day. The number of cases was going up astronomically. That the government took far more drastic steps. First, they locked down the north of the country, 16 million people. That was probably 16 days ago at this point. And then two days later, they, they applied it to the whole country. And I think in this case, the government was maybe a few, a few steps behind the science and surely behind the virus, but they were probably ahead of the people um, because Romans were still mostly carrying on as normal. And the first day of the lockdown, the city was maybe even appreciating the quiet a little bit. People were still moving around. Two, three, four things started changing, darkening for sure. And and the restrictions have been incrementally tightened. So no restaurants are not open now. Nothing is like nothing is open other than the bare minimum: supermarkets, pharmacies. Uh, you're not even allowed to go outside jogging or running. So. It's not like, oh, here are the Spanish steps. There's no tourists around. Let's go walk with the baby in the stroller. No, you cannot leave the house. You can, you're can't. you not allowed to go outside for any reason other than an essential, and you need to have uh, a certification that is getting ever more bu- bureaucratic by the day that you're supposed to print out, and have with you if you're going outside. So maybe I can be proven wrong. Maybe this can become more absolute than it already is. Uh, there, are, there are people that are getting uh, – arrested or charged for breaking the protocol but by and large Italians are really going with this i think in a way that is admirable and and that's been 2 weeks now so imagine 2 weeks of real strict adherence to a, a lockdown that the US is nowhere close to getting to and only now after 12 days of this is the are the first is there even the first glimmer that it might be working like the explosion of death and and cases is baked in before you take any action. So even if the U.S. tomorrow was to put everybody in their in their house, nothing would change about the scale of this outbreak until the end of March or even into the beginning of April. So, like the bomb is lit before before you even are aware of it, and that's what that's part of what makes this virus scary.
0: Chico, what? Um... You know, I presume that obviously you, you're fluent in Italian and you can read the papers and watch local news. Can you can you give uh, listeners just a sense of what is the what is it like for the Italian media? What, what what are you seeing every day on television? What are you reading every day in the papers?
1: Well, I'm I'm not fluent in Italian. I've been trying to study, and uh, and my comprehension is way better than my than my speaking. But but reading the papers, surely I'm doing that every single day um you know the Italian. I, I think i think the italian media is is doing its best um they're they're documenting every little f- flare-up um with with real granular precision and and i guess if you were to only read the italian papers you might you might miss the scale of the global pandemic but you would get a sense of the suffering in italy um i i normally the italian papers are kind of uh, a sounding board for the political back and forth and it can kind of get very inside baseball but but that's been mostly put aside during this and and they do come up because they have journalists all over the country of course, they come up with um, inside views of places that it would be hard for a single foreign correspondent to get to so it's invaluable to see it for me I'm kind of my the, the audience that I have in mind is a little different than them because I'm always thinking about americans and people in other countries and the way i the way i kind of i'm thinking about it is what what are the things that are happening unfolding in italy that can kind of sh- provide a warning sign for other countries or might light the road and and maybe three weeks ago i was thinking there could be some preemptive steps that they take by looking at the italian uh disaster but now i think it's more that italy is just uh a pretty grim preview of what's to come in, in
0: other places. Eigh, it's, 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 it's foreboding. Um, what is your process in terms of, um, and, and describe this as literal as you want, but how, how, how ultimately um, are you filing your stories? What's the process of you and post editors either back in Washington or, or elsewhere uh, I'm going to ask sort of sort of ask you a couple of questions just so you can go free form and then are stories assigned to you or are you pretty much independent in terms of you could ultimately decide what story gets done that day?
1: Yeah, I'm mostly coming up with my own ideas and it's a mix of just the news, the important stuff of the day, but but also trying to make sure that in any given week I can have two or three pieces that that really feel more like stories. They might be explanatory. They might they might try to just tap into a place or a moment or an emotion. But, um, but I've been, you know, there's, this is a moment when Italy couldn't have more stories that you want to tell. Um, but I've been trying to narrow that down by thinking about what, what are the things that are only happening in Italy because it is at the leading edge of the outbreak and, and so, for instance, like, I wouldn't necessarily want to write about precautions being taken at nursing homes because that's happening everywhere. Um, I'd be looking for the kinds of stories that are only for now happening in Italy and might soon be happening elsewhere. And and that all goes back to having this more American audience in mind.
0: Chico, um, I realize this is a pretty big question, but um, what can Americans learn even at this late date? From what's happened in Italy.
1: Well, I, I just would hope that people can perform the mental trick of being scared before the disaster is right in front of their face. Like, you do see these PSAs from celebrities sort of saying, stay indoors, as if it's like a good community thing to be doing, but, but even that doesn't quite feel right to me because to really to really understand the gravity of what's happening you almost have to put your you almost have to try to play forward the the way that this virus grows in magnitude by the day and and so you're taking action based not on what your world looks like right now but what it could look like in a week or two weeks so it's not like you have to use your imagination. You can look at Italy and you can decide, okay, I'm going to start today pretending like I have this virus or pretending like everybody around me other than my nuclear family might have this virus. That sounds like a terrible way to live. And it is, it's totally terrible way to live, but it's the only way to fully internalize the mindset that is necessary to social distance in the, in the way you need to for this virus to be minimized. And, you know, the unknown is how long that, that would be necessary. Ideally there's some cocktail of medicines or, uh, or longer down the road. Um, a vaccine, maybe the warmer weather helps. There's some reason to think that that might be the case, but for now, for March, for April, you know, it would be, it would be better to find a mental trick that helps you get really scared of this before it comes to your own neighborhood. And, and if, if the social distancing works and the disaster never escalates, maybe you look back on it and say, Oh, that was all for nothing. That would be, that would be great that you could thank Italy for that.
0: Are are Italian officials telling the public anything about, um, uh, timeframes in terms of how long they expect, um, you know, the state of emergencies throughout the country to continue? Because as you know, you know, one of the sort of things as we're talking now, one of the talking points in the United States, uh, rather scarily, is the, is the possibility of, a, um, of people going back to work in a shortened social isolation uh, or social distancing plan uh, in the U.S. Um, again, just for listeners who might not be aware of this, what are the Italian, what are Italian officials telling citizens right now in terms of this stuff?
1: Well, they're due, they're due to update because as of now, the restrictions are, are supposed to end on April 3rd. Obviously, that's, that's not going to happen. They will be, they'll be extended. Um, I don't know how long. They're, they're, in terms of messaging to the citizens, it is, it is not yet clear. But the prime minister has said in, in an interview with one of the Italian papers a few days ago that, the yeah, April 3rd will not be the end date for this stuff. Um, n- nobody, nobody really knows. But this is another area where Italy does get to kind of be, along with, with China to an extent, um, the the guinea pigs for how to release the levers gradually. You know, right now, China is trying to slowly get back to normal, and that's another moment when, when countries can really be at risk. Uh, but China can also, also has means to, to control people and to surveil that Italy and other democracies don't. So Italy will be facing... Uh, its own challenges when it gets to that point but it's nowhere near that yet i mean this is you can't really get to that point until the number of cases is down dramatically and and until the hospitals have had a time to to recover and to get back to normal to the point where they can they can handle other things. Right now they can't. Right now the Italian healthcare system in the North is barely able to breathe. Like one of the doctors I was talking to yesterday said basically the system is like, is like an animal on a rock in the middle of the ocean with only its nose above the water. As if to say like, you know, one more degree higher and the whole thing goes down. And in some parts of Italy, in some cities, it's already gone down. So, you know, th- things have to get a whole lot better before you can, before you can relax.
0: One of the things that uh, I wanted to ask you about, um, because you've really had an interesting career, um, you've done what you've done at the Post. Uh, prior to that, you worked out of Pittsburgh. Um, but, you know, for the purposes of this podcast, which is sort of um, at its core, a sports media podcast, you once covered the Nationals. And I wonder if, um, you know, and I wonder if as you're sort of, you know, in 2020, you're covering this this pandemic, this global crisis in Rome, uh, you ever sort of just sort of think about your days as covering the Nationals baseball, and sort of like, it, it must be surreal for you. In it, it, Once upon a time, you were sort of just a baseball writer, uh, like many colleagues and people that I know, and then sort of fast forward, you know, whatever, 12 years later, you're, you're, you're covering this. Life must have seemed a lot easier when you're, you know, only sort of thinking about Steven Strasburg and some of that other stuff
1: right well i mean i mean it's there's literally it's no more surreal to think back on 12 years ago doing that than it is to think look back on two months ago just living my life here uh they both feel they both feel like a lifetime ago but cover covering sports and you know i'm i i think you've talked to other uh sports writers at the post who who've changed um like chelsea Jane's was was one of my successors uh on the beat, and she's covering uh, the campaign now. The post, the post has been a place where you can kind of jump from one topic to the other, and and I think it's I think it's healthy because you know the basically the muscles of of doing journalism are not that different from topic to topic. But but surely when you're covering sports, especially baseball, you're writing a lot of stories quickly, and and in a pandemic, that actually it helps. Like most of the stuff I'm doing now is not on deadline, but I remember when I was in just really a year or two out of the baseball beat um, in 2011, it must have been, Kim Jong-il died. And he died like 30, 30 minutes before our newspaper's deadline. And I had, I had that much time, or his death was announced but that more accurately. And I had 30 minutes to put a story together. And, and it worked. It worked totally well. I, I did not sweat it. Because I'd, I'd done that exact thing so many times, hundreds of times during the previous few years. And, and I thought, you know, this, all these game stories uh, at Nats Park at 12.30 a.m. definitely led, led to that. Um, and still those muscles haven't completely gone away, which, which I'm thankful for. And, you know, as, as, as a non-sports writer now looking back, it's actually easier to like sports now because... I'm not in the locker room. I'm, I'm really just a fan now. So I, I was watching the Nats like getting up in the middle of the night during the World Series run. And now they'll probably be defending champs until
0: 2021. <laughs> Very true. Who is your favorite person in baseball to cover as a subject?
1: As a subject. Oh, Wow of course, you know, those, these answers are always lame. Cause the best one, the best people to talk to are always the ones who are scrubs, who are forgotten, who are one step away from like triple a, those are the ones that always had the time for me. So I, I'm trying, I'm trying to think I, I, I don't have a favorite, but, uh, but the teams that I covered were, were terrible or totally dreadful. I think one of the teams like 102 games and another had lost 103 this is the reason they they got harper and or in the opposite order in back-to-back years because they were the worst team in baseball two years in a row so i must have watched 60 people throw their last pitch or or take their last swing in a uniform because uh they and a lot of uh, several of those players ended up go following me to japan and korea
0: yeah that's uh i'm looking right now on the um Uh, the 2008 Washington Nationals man I forgot how horrible they were 59 and 102. Manny Acta was the manager Wow Jim Bowden now of the athletic was the uh general manager I mean Chico this was a horrible team. I mean these guys this is a bad year uh, Aaron moon now the uh, now Yankees manager was the first baseman on that team. wow I forgot about this team that's crazy. Aaron
1: Aaron Boone was a pretty good guy. He was, he was, you know, most of these, most of these guys were, um, were nice and, and would give you the time and they were lovely in spring training. But then by April 23rd, you know, they're three and 18, their season is over. and, and, Everybody knows it, and you just have to play out the string, and, and you're there writing and, and documenting the next 130 games, 100 of which are going to be losses. And by the end of the season, it's just a really nasty, nasty environment.
0: By the way, Tim Redding is the ace of the staff. That really tells you everything you need to know right there.
1: Tim Redding. Tim <laughs> Redding ended up playing in the Korean Professional League.
0: Yeah, um, Wow. Well, there you go. Listen, Chico, I wish you um, – Obviously, you and your family, nothing but the best of health. Uh, you're doing incredibly important work in very, very stressful times, um, and a lot of people appreciate it. Even, even if you're isolated there, trust me, um, I'm reading. There's a lot of people who are reading. Chico Harlan is the Rome Bureau Chief for the Washington Post. He joined that paper in 2008, uh, and as I just cited before, he was a Washington Nationals beat writer. He then spent four years at the paper's as East Asia Bureau Chief, focusing on Japan and the Korean Peninsula. Uh, prior to that, he worked in Pittsburgh, um, and I think maybe even in Sydney for a little bit. So he's had a really, really interesting career. Check out his um, his work at the Post because I really think it's sort of a precursor of um, of what is uh, what is what is coming and what is here now in the United States. And if you want to follow, if you're on Twitter and you want to follow Chico on Twitter, it's at Chico Harlan. So at C H I C O H A R L A N. Chico, man, it's really good of you to do this. Um, I'll be certainly staying in touch with you over the interwebs, and uh, yeah, my best to you and your family. Stay safe, man. Thanks, thanks so much for joining me today.
1: Okay, thanks, Richard.
0: All right, back in the studio. My thanks to Chico Harlan uh, for uh, talking to us uh, from Rome. I hope you, uh, I hope you found that interesting. I did, a little scary too. Um, previous guest on this podcast, Scott Van Pelt, uh, was the. Uh, the last guest I did, and that was sort of doing SportsCenter in the age of a pandemic. Before that, Dr. Sling Gounder and Grant Wall, they are married. Uh, Celine Gounder is a uh, foremost epidemiologist in this country, Grant Wall. Uh, her husband, uh, one of the foremost soccer writers in this country. Uh, before that, uh, a couple podcasts with John O'Rand about Tony Romo's uh, mega contract and some other stuff going on in the sports media. And then just head to our um, head to our archives page where you can find all the podcasts we've done. Please leave us a uh, five-star review if you like this stuff. Uh, That's how the uh, podcast continues. Uh, Great thanks to Sean Cherry and Patrick Antonetti for putting this podcast together, especially with somebody from Italy. Uh, Thanks and uh, good wishes. Staying safe to everybody. Cadence 13 from Chris Corcoran, Spencer Brown, John McDermott, and the guys I mentioned. Uh, This is Richard Deitch, and um, we'll continue to put out the podcast uh, as long as we can. We'll see you next week on the Sports Media Podcast.